Amen. Thanks, Kurt. If you have a Bible, you want to open up to Luke chapter 22, a hard copy, or you've got it on your phone. We're going to be in verses 47 through 65, which when you get that open and you see it, is probably, depending on your translation, three different broken out sections in your English translation. The reason we're grouping all of those together is because they happen all in the context of Jesus being arrested and then taken to the high priest's house where he's going to have sort of his first initial interactions with what's going to be a series of trials that end up leading to his crucifixion. And over the course of that process, my encouragement to you from now until we see Jesus crucified is gaze at Jesus in all of this and just sort of glance at the other individuals involved in these accounts. The temptation is to put a lot of our focus on the people arresting Jesus, the people beating Jesus, the people trying Jesus, Judas as he betrays Jesus, Peter as he denies Jesus. Those can be instructive, but the real power of the gospel is to gaze at Jesus. And here we're going to see him in his final moments led up to where he's crucified, dead, dies, put in a tomb. He's going to resurrect. The real power here is locking our eyes on Jesus and just sort of giving passing glances to the others who are involved in these accounts. And one of the things you're going to see from this moment all the way up until Jesus's crucifixion is that his sort of emotional posture and stance is wildly different than everyone else that he interacts with. I don't know if you've ever had a moment like that where you're in some sort of group setting and you kind of realize, I'm having a very different experience than everyone else here. My wife is the oldest of five. Her youngest brother is engaged. His fiance is a Raiders fan. Sometimes Melody's whole family will get together for a Chiefs game and I think, Allison's having a very different experience here than everyone else. Whether we're playing the Raiders or not, it's always to her team's benefit if the Chiefs lose, and that doesn't happen very often recently. And so I always think to myself, Allison, having a very different experience than everybody else in the room. Just on Friday night, my wife and I played spades with some friends, and it was the last hand of this particular game. Whoever won this hand, someone was going to get set. This is more information than you need. But whoever won this thing was going to win the game. And we got about four tricks into playing this game and I realized we're gonna lose. We're listening to some early 2000s playlist that our friends have coming through their speakers and the song Killing Me Softly by the Fugees comes on. (laughs) And as the round progresses... Uh, a Fuji's concert like breaks out in the dining room and three people, my wife and our friends are singing, not just like mumble singing. It's like full throat, three part harmony, strumming my pain with his fingers, right? Killing me softly with his song and I'm dying slowly. That's what's happening. There, three people, my partner included, who's about to lose are having a party and I am slowly dying as this happens. The the game gets over, we lose, which I was aware was going to happen. And I said, can we just pause and talk about what just happened in here? Because everybody's having a great time and I am miserable. That's, I'm having a different emotional experience than everyone else in the room. As we work our way through this, watch Jesus. Gaze at Jesus. He is in a wildly different spot, not just as compared to everyone else in the moment, but he's also in an emotionally different place than I think any of us would be 
if swapped into his position. I'm going to start reading in Luke chapter 22, verse 47. I'm going to read through verse 65. If you've got to open, follow along with me. It says this. While he was still speaking, suddenly a mob came, and one of the twelve named Judas was leading them. He came near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When those around him saw what was going to happen, they asked, Lord, should we strike with the sword? Then one of them struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. But Jesus responded, no more of this. And touching his ear, he healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests, temple police, and the elders who had come for him, have you come out with swords and clubs as if I were a criminal? Every day while I was with you in the temple, you never laid a hand on me, but this is your hour and the dominion of darkness. They seized him, led him away, and brought him into the high priest's house. Meanwhile, Peter was following at a distance. They lit a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, and Peter sat among them. When a servant saw him sitting in the light and looked closely at him, she said, this man was with him too. But he denied it. Woman, I don't know him. After a little while, someone else saw him and said, you're one of them too. Man, I am not, Peter said. About an hour later, another kept insisting. This man was certainly with him since he's also a Galilean. But Peter said, man, I don't know what you're talking about. Immediately while he was still speaking, a rooster crowed. Then the Lord turned and looked at Peter. So Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. The men who were holding Jesus started mocking and beating him. After blindfolding him, they kept asking, prophesy, who was it that hit you? And they were saying many other blasphemous things to him. Let's pray. God, we praise you for the opportunity to gather together today as a church, to gather around your word, to see and rejoice in the beauty of the gospel and the wonder of who Jesus is. God, I pray this morning that your spirit would be here among us, working, active, taking the truth of your word, pressing it deeply into our hearts, helping us to see and behold the kindness of Jesus, moving us toward repentance in response to that kindness, shaping us into the image of Christ in response to that kindness. God, would your word go forth powerfully this morning we pray in Jesus' name, amen. If you were with us last week, we introduced this chart. This is like a where are we in the final days of Jesus chart. You'll see the box around Jesus arrested. That's where we are tonight. We actually bridge into what is the beginning of Jesus's trials. Uh, there are a number of them with Jewish leaders, with the civil leaders of the day. But all of this takes place as Thursday transitions into the wee hours of the morning on Friday. And so Jesus is going to be arrested very, very late on Thursday night in the garden. And his trials are going to begin taking place at the high priest's house in the very, very early mornings of Friday. This isn't a Jesus gets arrested and they put him in a holding cell and everybody sleeps until business hours the next day. Jesus gets arrested. They walk him from the Mount of Olives back into the city of Jerusalem to the chief priest's house. They take him into the courtyard of that house and the trial 
begins immediately. What takes place there in the courtyard happens in the very wee hours of the morning on the same day that he's going to be crucified. This whole thing literally takes place under the cover of darkness. That's why in verse 53, at the end of that verse, Jesus looks at those who have come to arrest him and he says, this is your hour. The dominion of darkness. It's the predetermined plan and will of the Lord that these events would be the ones that launch Jesus into the very dark moments that lead to his brutal and unjust death. These events could not have taken place before this moment and they will not linger a single moment longer than the Lord's hands allowed. The staying hand of the Lord withheld this moment until this time and the conquering hand of the Lord will overcome this on the morning of the third day. But from this hour until that one, Jesus says, this is your hour. This is the dominion of darkness. We're gonna go through this passage twice. Once to look at briefly the individuals that surround Jesus and then another time to gaze upon Christ. And Jesus is going to be having a different experience here. A different experience than anyone else that surrounds him. A different experience than we would have. He's going to model a different way of engaging in this moment than our flesh would lead us to have. So we'll see the failings of humanity, the kindness of Jesus and the bright light of the gospel. And in the face of human failing, Jesus is unfailingly kind. In the face of human failing, Jesus is unfailingly kind. Start with me in verses 47 and 48. While he was still speaking, suddenly a mob came, and one of the twelve named Judas was leading them. He came near Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss. In Judas, we have this incredible moment of wickedness. We've talked about Judas's actions quite a bit leading up to this point, but there's one final piece that's worth pointing out here. Judas takes an act of intimacy and relationship and he turns it into an act of betrayal. That kiss, whether it be on the hand or on Jesus's cheek, that is an act that friends and people in this time would greet one another with. Jesus, or Judas takes that and he flips it out of the realm of intimacy into the realm of betrayal. As if this whole series of events that's played out in Judas's life isn't bad enough, he punctuates it by turning an act of friendship into an act of treason. I use the word treason intentionally there. Treason is to betray the king. That's what Judas is doing. In one act, Judas sells out the immeasurably valuable king of kings, lord of lords, son of God for a bag of money that equates to roughly $200 in today's money. And in that, Judas provides here for us one final example in the gospel of Luke of the sobering truth that proximity to Jesus, familiarity with Jesus, and knowledge of Jesus are no guarantees of saving faith. We've seen that up to this point in the Pharisees. Repeatedly, Jesus has displayed for us that proximity to religion, familiarity with religion, knowledge of religion, those are no guarantees of saving faith. 
here in Judas. We see the proximity to Jesus, familiarity with Jesus, knowledge of Jesus. Those are no guarantees of saving faith. To put that into today's language, proximity to the church, familiarity with the church, knowledge of the church. Those are no guarantees of saving faith. Judas gives us that one last picture. And in a moment of wickedness, he betrays the king of kings. Look at verses 49 and 50. When those around him saw what was going to happen, they asked, Lord, should we strike with the sword? Then one of them struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. Notice the way that this goes. One of the disciples asks if they should strike with the sword. Now that's one of the two swords that Luke already told us that the disciples have. This must have been one of those questions that you ask, assuming you know the answer. Because before Jesus responds, the disciple uses it. We're going to see later that had he waited for a response, Jesus' answer would have been, no, don't do that. But instead, John's gospel tells us that it's Peter who uses the sword to cut off the ear of the high priest's servant. Lord, should we strike with the sword? Our staff gets together on Tuesday mornings and sometimes there'll be food there, like somebody will bring donuts or somebody will have brought something in. And a very common thing that happens is is that there's someone on our staff who will walk into that meeting and the food will be on the counter. And they'll say, oh, who is this for? As they grab the food. Like, what if the answer was not you? Now your grubby hands have been on it, so I suppose it's for you, right? That's what happens here in the garden. Lord, we've got these swords. Should we strike? As the strike is taking place. What in the world is going on there? Well, they're worried. I think understandably so. They're worried about what's going to happen to Jesus. Understandably, they're worried that if something happens to Jesus, what will happen to them? Peter has said that he's willing to go to prison or to jail in order to follow Jesus, but he's apparently not willing to go to either of those places without at least putting up a fight. Now, he wasn't willing to battle it out in prayer in the garden moments before this, as Jesus said, pray that you won't fall into temptation, but he is willing to battle it out with a sword now that Jesus is about to be arrested. They're worried. Verses 54 to 62 tell us what happens with Peter. They seized him, led him away, and brought him into the high priest's house. Meanwhile, Peter was following at a distance. They lit a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, and Peter sat among them. Something worth noting here. Peter says, Lord, I would go with you to prison and to death. Peter gets a bad rap for what happens in the garden. He's got this, or in the courtyard, he's got this, Moment of weakness. I don't say that to be um, judgmental. I don't say that in any sort of like pejorative sense. I just, we're trying to quantify what's going on here. Judas has a moment of wickedness. The disciples have a moment of worry. Peter has a moment of weakness. But he did go. John tells us that John is the only other one who follows Jesus at his arrest. So Peter at least like begins to make good on this claim that he makes that he would follow Jesus to prison and to death. But we're told that he follows at a distance. 
Peter follows Jesus at a distance directly into the court of the high priest's home. Now, we've talked about what these houses typically look like for wealthy people at this time, that there's a courtyard open in the middle of these homes that you could typically see into from the street. That is where this initial setting of Jesus's first trial takes place. Jesus is over with the high priest, presumably having his initial charges brought against him by those who have arrested him. And Peter is out in the courtyard where those who arrested Jesus are hanging out. They light a fire and it's in the light of that fire that someone, a servant, female servant, recognizes Jesus for the first time. And she says, verse 56, this man was with him too. Peter denies it. Woman, I don't know him. And after a little while, someone else, one of the other bystanders there, says, you're one of them too. Peter denies that. Again, man, I am not. About an hour later, another one, person there keeps insisting, this man was with him since he's also a Galilean. People from Galilee, they had an accent. And so he recognizes the way that he hears Peter talking and insists that this knows Jesus. And Jesus denies it a third time. Peter, who claimed that he would go with Jesus to prison and to death, who at least had the courage to follow after Jesus was arrested, who is self-delusional. We talked about that. Feels like he's strong enough to walk the path behind Jesus here. He goes right into the courtyard with all of these folks who have arrested Jesus and are conspiring to have him killed. He sits down at the fire with him and he, in a moment of weakness, he denies Jesus three times. Luke records that from some distance away, when the rooster crows, Jesus turns and he looks at Peter. Think back to when you were a child. You did something wrong. And at some point in your life, you had learned the various looks of your parents to the point that when they looked at you with a particularly withering kind of look, you were out in public, you did something wrong, and they gave you the look that said, when we get in the car, we're going to discuss this. And they didn't need to say that. They just looked at you and you knew it. I don't think that's the look that Jesus gives Peter. But when Jesus and Peter hear the rooster crow and they lock eyes, everything that needs to be communicated is communicated there. I don't think it's a look of condemnation. I don't think it's a look of judgment. I think it's a knowing look of sorrow. A knowing look of the loneliness that Jesus is experiencing increasingly at this point. And then in verses 63, 64, and 65, we're told the men who were holding Jesus, so those who arrested him, started mocking and beating him. After blindfolding him, they kept asking, prophesy, who was it that hit you? And they were saying many other blasphemous things to him. We could talk about the those who come to arrest Jesus from two different places, in the garden and also here in the courtyard. And if Judas has a moment of wickedness and the disciples a moment of worry, Peter a moment of weakness, what we have here in the opposition, the opponents to Jesus here is just wrongness. It's like wrongheadedness. These people are simply wrong in every sense of the word. They're wrong in what they're doing Arresting Jesus, taking him to trial on false charges, seeking to have him killed for no reason, beating him, mocking him, blaspheming him. They're wrong in why they're doing those things. 
They're wrong for their preservation of their current religious system. They're wrong in their thinking that Jesus is somehow this massive threat to them. They're wrong in their concern for the preservation of their power and positions of authority. They're wrong in what they're saying, blaspheming Jesus. Luke doesn't even choose to record the things that are said. He just puts them under that heading. They were blaspheming him. They're wrong in making fun of his ability to prophesy or to know what's happening. I mean, just consider that for a moment. The guards have Jesus blindfolded. They're beating him. They're telling him to name who it was that hit him. Meanwhile, Jesus has just predicted down to the smallest of details what Peter would do and what Judas would do. He absolutely knows who it is that's hitting him and he chooses to say nothing. Whether it be the religious leaders who spearhead the entire effort or the individuals brought along to put Jesus in shackles and lead him to the high priest's home. Everyone in this opposition is swept up in the prevailing thoughts of their day about who this man is. And those prevailing thoughts about Jesus are wrong. They lead these people into wrong words and to wrong actions. So there's everybody surrounding Jesus. I want to offer at this point kind of two calls to introspection. The first one is this. Weakness is often the first step on the road to wickedness. It is wise for each of us to be keenly aware of our flesh's weak points. For Judas, it was money. His indignation over the use of the perfume that was used to anoint Jesus appears to have been the last straw for him. Incensed at the waste of money, and his missed opportunity to take some off the top for himself, his weakness in matters of wealth gave birth to his sin and wickedness. For Peter, the weakness was his self-delusion. He's absolutely certain that he would never deny Jesus. And when he's thrust right into the midst of those who are looking to kill Jesus, his weakness gets exposed. When pressed on, both of these individuals have their weakness thrust out there in front of everyone for all to see. Judas's weakness when it comes to money ends up giving way to his sin and his wickedness. Peter's weakness as it relates to his own spiritual self-delusion leads him to deny Jesus. Now there are some questions that could be asked here. Like what's the difference between Peter's denial and Judas's betrayal? If Judas's betrayal is a wicked act of sin, is Peter's denial an act of sin? Those are fair questions. I'm not sure that you could like take the text and delineate perfectly clear answers on them. What we can say for certain is that all of us have flesh that is weak. Sometimes our weakness gets exposed and that weakness is the first step on the way to outward overt sin and wickedness. Sometimes our weakness gets exposed and our first move when confronted with our flesh's weakness is to go to prayer. We talked about that last week when we looked at the disciples in the garden. And when we move in prayer in the midst of our weakness, we go toward Jesus rather than away from Jesus. That's what the act of prayer is. And so if we're trying to be keenly aware of our flesh's weak points... One of the responses to that is that when that weakness begins to be exposed, fly toward Jesus in prayer rather than away from him in sort of your own kind of strength and allow the strength of the Lord in the place of prayer to be the thing that upholds you 
in that moment. Rather than thinking that on your own, you can handle the temptation or the sin or whatever the case might be. Number two, Jesus never intended for his followers to advance his kingdom according to the ways and the weapons of the world. Familiarity with this account makes us sort of immune to the events that surround Jesus's arrest. Combine that with the fact that we live in a culture that isn't all that opposed to violence and the disciples' behavior isn't all that shocking. A group of people come out to arrest Jesus. He's got a posse of people with him. It kind of only makes sense to us that a scuffle of some sort would ensue there in the garden. In fact, the history of Christianity is such that violence has often regrettably been done in the name of and seemingly for the misguided advance of Christianity. But that's not always been the case. The early church and the model of Jesus rejected the use of force or the use of violence as a means by which they would advance the kingdom. Instead, they embraced Jesus's model of suffering. In his book, Bullies and Saints, John Dixon says this, They believed that true power to change the world lay not in politics, the judiciary, or the military, but in the message of Christ's death and resurrection. Whatever you may make of a miraculous resurrection all these years later, the first Christians really believed it. And they saw it as the proof and pledge that God vindicated the sufferings of Jesus and will also one day vindicate the suffering church. That is what made the early Christians good, even cheerful losers. They thought that they had already won. Their role was simply to remain true to the way of Christ, seeking to transform the world through prayer, service, persuasion, and suffering. The thing that ought to be shocking in the garden, in the courtyard of the high priest's house, is that Jesus is categorically opposed to fighting back. Here we see the model of Jesus, who routinely refuses to advance his kingdom according to or by use of the world's ways and weapons. We would do well today in the church to give serious thought as to whether or not we're truly aligned with Jesus in this way in our current society. In our current day, I'm not talking about physical violence. We take up the ways and the weapons of our modern day, typically as it relates to how we engage in matters of difference of opinion in the public square. More often than not, we take up the same rhetoric, the same tone, the same posture, and the same demeanor as the rest of the world in engaging in debates about current issues within our world. Over the last couple of weeks, all you need to do is go to your Facebook to observe both sides as it relates to the Supreme Court's most recent decision regarding abortion, engaging in the exact same tactics in conversation with one another. It's as though if we were to put ourselves in this spot, Jesus' followers would be saying, I have this meme, Jesus. Should I use it? But they're hitting post as they ask the question because obviously the answer is yes, this is how we fight today. 
But if Jesus were there and you gave him the chance to respond, I think he would say, let me show you a better way. Let me offer you something different. Like the early Christians in the days immediately following the ascension of Jesus, I think we would do well to simply remain true to the way of Christ, seeking to transform the world through prayer, service, persuasion, and suffering. It does not feel as good. In fact, sometimes it's difficult and painful. And there is something inside of our flesh that really, really loves sticking it to the other side. Especially if then people will come along and like our sticking it to the other side. But those tend to be the world's ways and the world's weapons. And I am not convinced that they are the means by which Christ would choose to advance his kingdom in our world were he here today. Jesus never intended for his followers to advance his kingdom according to the ways and the weapons of the world. More important in this section and in all sections of scripture than putting our eyes on humanity or onto ourselves is putting our eyes onto Christ. We gaze at Jesus, we glance at everyone else. And so I wanna walk back through this and just look at the way Jesus engages in each one of these situations. In response to Judas's wickedness, Jesus is patient. Jesus is patient in the face of Judas's wickedness. Remember, Jesus called Judas at the start of his ministry, equipped Judas throughout his ministry, taught Judas as he preached. He did ministry alongside Judas. He sent Judas out to do ministry in his name on behalf of the kingdom. And all the while, he knew Judas was the betrayer. And when they go into that upper room at the Last Supper, Jesus does not scold Judas, does not belittle Judas, does not shame Judas. He's there with the betrayer. He's just patient. In fact, John records that Jesus, right before Judas leaves, simply says, what you're doing, do quickly. No attempt to stop him, to talk him out of it. He's just patient in the face, even of Judas's sin and wickedness. In the middle of the disciples' worry, Jesus is gentle gentle in the face of his disciples anxiety and concern and worry he's not condescending with them in this moment he rebukes them so that no more violence is done and then he gently provides a model for them the individual whose ear was chopped off in a moment of kind of self-righteous violence jesus bends down heals the man who was harmed and then submits himself to what is to come. In the midst of all of their worry and anxiety and concern about what's going to happen to Jesus and what's going to happen of them, he is gentle. Jesus is forgiving in the face of Peter's weakness. Jesus' look in the courtyard isn't a withering scowl. It's not a head-hanging look of disappointment. There's a knowing look that passes from Jesus to Peter. But Jesus is going to encounter Peter again after the resurrection, multiple times in fact. And one of his first moves toward Peter 
is going to be to restore him to ministry. It's not going to be to shame him for what happened in the courtyard. It's not even going to be to remind him of what happened in the courtyard. There's an act of forgiving kindness toward the weakness of Peter. And toward his opposition, Jesus is calm in the face of their violent wrongness. He heals his arrestor's ear. He stands silent as he's beaten and mocked. There's no rage in Jesus, no anger in Jesus. There's no begging or pleading or bargaining. There's no escape or legal battle. He does not strike back verbally or physically. He does not acquiesce to their taunts about prophesying. He does not stoop to the level of joining them in their insults. In the middle of all of the chaos that surrounds him, Jesus is calm. And as everything is unfolding, Judas's wickedness, his disciples' worry and violence, his opposition's wrongness and violence, Peter's weakness, Jesus is kind. He's having a totally different experience than everyone else around him. And in the face of all of that human failing, Jesus is unfailingly kind. Just how kind? He's so kind that he's hours away from going to the cross for each and every one of these individuals. Think about that. The unthinkable wonder of the gospel is that Jesus goes to the cross on behalf of wicked people like Judas, weak people like Peter, worrying and self-protecting people like the disciples, and wrong-headed people like his captors. As Peter we're told in the Gospel of John, takes out a sword to fight against those who came to arrest Jesus. Jesus stops him and is prepared to die for people who came to arrest him. That is the kindness of Christ. As Peter is denying Jesus there in the courtyard, one day Jesus would confess Peter to the Father. That's the kindness of Christ. Jesus died for the men who arrested him, died for the men who beat him, died for the men who blaspheme and mock him. He dies for the men who would incorrectly enact violence on his behalf. He dies for the men who deny him. Why? Because of his eternal, unchanging, unrelenting kindness. That's who he is. There's all sorts of mystery that surrounds what happens here in the garden. I've already are in the courtyard. I've already said a couple of weeks ago that I don't really want to speculate about Judas's eternal uh, end point. I still don't want to do that. But what about these religious leaders who want to have Jesus arrested, who trump up these false charges, who whip a crowd into a frenzy to get Barabbas back instead of Jesus? Do any of them ever come to faith? Like when they see Jesus hang on the cross, when they see that he is resurrected and he's walking around there in Jerusalem? Do any of them have a moment whereby they come to faith? I have no idea. What about these guys who have him in chains and they're beating him and mocking him? One of them very well might be the guard who at Jesus's crucifixion says, truly, this is the son of God. I have no idea. But Jesus is unfailingly kind in all of this. Why? Because it's who he is. And because the kindness of Jesus is not intended to provide license for sin, 
but instead the gentle grace necessary for repentance. Jesus is not kind towards sinful people so that we would continue to be wicked and continue to give in to our weaknesses and continue to be people who are worrying and self-protecting or continue to be people who are just wrong about him. He's kind that we might repent. Repent and turn toward Jesus because we can trust in his unfailing kindness in the face of whatever our failures are. Not just regret what we've done, not just have remorse over what has happened, but truly repent. And the unfailing kindness of Jesus is such that today, no matter what it is that you've brought into this space, no matter what it is that you've done in the past, no matter what situation you might find yourself in right now, he is unfailingly kind toward you. As the grace of God draws you toward repentance, you will only ever find Jesus being unfailingly kind. That's it. You can receive that kindness today. You can look into the face of that kindness today. But it doesn't stop there. It's not as though Jesus is unfailingly kind to us when we first come to faith and have our sin forgiven and then he's condemning and judgmental of us as we stumble our way forward after that. No, in every failing follower of Jesus, he is unfailingly kind. And that means this, as you face the darkest, blackest, most broken, vilest places in your heart, you see the reality of that brought to light and you are forced to stare at it. The good news of the gospel is that you get all the way to the bottom of that and you find it at its most broken. You do not find condemnation in hell there, brother or sister in Jesus. You find the blood of Jesus washing you clean. That is the wonder of the gospel. That's the unfailing kindness of Christ. Whatever you could do, Dig to the bottom of yourself and find, no matter how shameful you might think it is, there's the blood of Jesus kindly washing you clean. Every human failing, Jesus is unfailingly kind. That's the wonder of the gospel. And the intent of that kindness is to move us toward repentance. Repentance one time that we might be saved by the grace of God and then repentance continually that we might continue to encounter his kindness. We can know two things for sure from this passage and both of them should give us great comfort. The first is that in the face of human failing, Jesus is unfailingly kind. The second is that the kindness of Jesus is intended to move us to repentance and Peter is this ultimate picture of that. He's got this moment of weakness there in the garden. He's only gonna be met by kindness when he and Jesus interact again after the resurrection. The cleansing, kind, gentle, gracious, loving blood of Jesus runs all the way down to the deepest, darkest corner of our broken and sin-filled human hearts. And there we find only kindness. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. And then we'll close in worship. God, thank you for your son. Thank you that in the face of all of our sin and all of our brokenness and all of our failing, you are ever, only, and 
always kind to us and you've displayed that to us supremely in Christ. God, my prayer is that each and every person here would experience the gentle grace of Christ's kindness, that they would be moved to repentance, have their sin forgiven, washed clean by the blood of Christ and be able to stand clothed in his righteousness in their moment of judgment. God, my prayer for every follower of Jesus in this room is that with an unflinching kind of courage and boldness, we would be willing to look truthfully at the reality of our hearts and know with certainty that whatever darkness we might find there, that it's only ever met with the kind and cleansing blood of Jesus Christ and that we would allow that kindness to move us not into freedom to sin, but instead toward repentance, humility, and obedience to him. God, would you work that in us, your people, by the power of your spirit, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. You can stand, let's sing together.